and welcome to this episode of Battling with Business with me, Gareth Tennant. And me, Chris Kitchener. In this podcast, we're hoping to explore ideas and concepts around teams and teamwork, leaders and leadership, and all things in between. It's a discussion between a former Royal Marines officer and a product manager from the world of business, comparing and contrasting our experiences as we attempt to work out what makes teams, leaders and businesses tick. And this week's podcast is quite boringly, on my end, certainly sponsored by uh, just a cup of tea, because it's a weekday evening and I haven't really stopped work yet. What are you drinking? See, this is unfair. You, we've done podcasts where you get to be on a different continent and doing something very exciting. Uh, I am on the road. Um, I, a chunk of my team, we're doing quarterly planning. And so I am in a very, very exciting uh uh, best Western Hotel, and in the true sense of the BBC, there are other hotels. Um, five miles east of Birmingham Airport, and my drink of choice tonight, sitting in my hotel room where you can probably hear the uh, air conditioning wearing in the background, is a bottle of Diet Coke to sit Lovely. in the evening. So I, I, we're really going to... I didn't think this was going to be a competitive podcast, but I think we're going to have to turn it into that as well. You are absolutely living the corporate dream with your Diet Coke <laughs> in a West Midlands hotel doing all I a need is, quarterly review. All I need is a Life Mondeo in the car park. The Mondeo in the car park with the seat <laughs> hanging off the thing. No, it's quite better than that. Anyway, it does no, look good, very good. beige, I have to say. Your screen is all one colour. It, it is rather beige. But, you know, uh, I've been lucky. I've, I've travelled the world in different hotel rooms. It gets to the point where... It's just a place to sleep. So it's all good. And actually yeah, uh, an opportunity for me to uh, sit down and, and spend a bit of time on the podcast. So that's quite good as well. Yeah, absolutely. And and you have done some thinking because you, uh, you wanted to take the lead on the subject for this week's episode. Yes. So one of the great things about starting your own podcast is you literally get to sort of do whatever takes your fancy and you get to change styles along the way. And this one is slightly different from perhaps something we've done before, but I hope will be interesting and valuable. And while there's a wry smile on my face as I do this, please know that there's, there's an edge of steel under this because there's some, some, some valuable lessons I've learned. And so before I tell you exactly what the topic is, I'll, I'll share what happened to me last week. Um, so I'm in the software business. I run a team of people. We, you know, all the scrum, agile, working stuff that you've heard us talk about before. And we were talking about a particular project. It was a particular feature that we were building. And the feature was running late. And in fact, the, the, the moment of clarity I had was, wait a minute, we had this conversation last week and the same conversation before about this feature running late why haven't we acknowledged that there is something wrong here? And um, what struck me was, oh, hang on, I've been here before. This is an example of when a project isn't going the way you expected. And I sort of kicked myself because I've done this enough times to, I should have picked up on the language, should have picked up, frankly, on my own language about, I should have noticed three weeks ago that something was going wrong and acted on it then. So the, the topic I wanted to cover this week, which is designed to be internet clickbait, is top 10 reasons that you know 
that there may be something going awry with your project or your the activities that you are doing. So that's that's what I wanted to cover. As I say, you, I've got a bit of a smile on my face because these are to some degree a little bit tongue in cheek, but actually this really is 20 years of me being involved in projects that have worked well or not worked well and figuring out how to how to to spot that early so you can do something about it and that that's maybe the the, the last piece of the puzzle is why do we want to know when a project is going wrong so i you know typically i work in quite high pressure software teams where we have to deliver stuff and there is a sense that if if you want to know if something is going wrong it is because we wish to punish is too strong a word but someone's done something wrong and therefore it's you know it's this natural sense of we don't necessarily want to face these things when actually uh and i don't think this is just me in a weird way it's quite the opposite the reason why i want to know when a project is not working as expected when it's sort of going off the rails is so that we can do something about it so the goal of this if i if I share some of these and people listening say, oh, I had that last week. That's a really good reminder. The next time I hear it, I'll do something about it. It's not because we want to sort of say people have done something bad or punish them. The goal is this. The earlier you can detect that something is not going as planned or as you want, the earlier you can sit down with people, you can talk about it, you can understand it and you can address it. So very long rambling introduction, top 10 things that give you a clue that things might not be going well. So I'm loving the fact that you're embracing the podcast now being on YouTube. So we're now doing lists because we know that is the clickbait that everybody needs. But in all seriousness, I'm quite interested in this because I've had a, a sneak peek at your top 10. And I think some of them resonate really really well with my experiences of operations in the military not going to plan and some of them don't quite so much uh, and i say so i'm looking forward to sort of getting into the conversation about where those differences lie why that might be the case um so yeah let's let's learn a little bit more what is your number one number one so I, I don't know whether to go top to bottom or bottom. To, uh, well, we're, are, we're not, are they in order to start with? Like, um, well, the, the, there's kind of an order, but it's more as in as projects go on, how the, sort of the stages. But the first one is so let's let's dive into it because I think we've we've kicked it around enough. The first sign that things could be going wrong, and I've got to be really clear here, by the way, with all of these, none of these are your definitive. If you hear this or if you see this something terrible is happening actually all it should do is make you lift an eyebrow and say hang on a minute let's talk about this the first one which is going to be really counterintuitive is optimism when you hear optimism in the voices of your team more often than not it is time to start questioning things and i'll i'll give you sort of this is the 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 short version of what I heard in this particular team. And by the way, I should be clear, the team in question actually are a highly functioning team. This is an excellent team. So this is not ah uh, terrible teams. This actually is a very good team. But the, the conversation went like this. 
oh, how are we doing? We haven't quite got there yet. Hmm. We, we said that last week. Yeah, that's true. A few things have come in, but we're nearly there. So the first one for me is optimism. So, yeah, I mean, you, you said that counterintuitive. It feels very strange because it's also a sign that your project might be going really well, isn't it? Everybody's quite optimistic about how things are going. So, um, firstly, do you think there's a difference there between optimism because things are going well and optimism because people think they can pull it back from the brink? It's as if you were you had fallen almost for my clickbait, or rather you didn't fall for my clickbait. You, you are entirely right. So I think that, that there is a nuance here to the optimism. So, you know, I, I'm an optimistic person. I have optimistic teams. That's fantastic. Actually, just to dig in a little bit more, this is optimism around a plan. So here's the funny thing. A plan has no emotion to it. A plan is a series of activities a series of milestones, a series of outcomes and goals. If you think about it, there is no optimism or pessimism around a plan. There is just a plan. So when you start to apply optimism to a plan, that's the first little sort of indicator you want to talk about it. But the second thing which you tie into that is, so if everything is hitting all the milestones and everything is going well, you literally are meeting the whole plan and you are optimistic, that's not a bad thing necessarily. I might come back to that later. But if you're optimistic and you aren't meeting the milestones, and what's more, on multiple occasions, you have said to each other, we're not meeting, that's the one to look out for. Now, again, you know, I'm, I'm making it out, this is all black and white. And again, sort of a big smile on my face, but that for me was the key thing. It was the same conversation, effectively three weeks in a row the outcome had not changed we had not completed the project we'd missed the milestone missed the milestone missed the milestone and yet we were saying it's okay and just i bet people listening to this would say well you're an idiot chris because you've just you've articulated there was a plan the plan was not met how on earth could you not have seen optimism optimism is the It'll be okay, you know, we'll make it up, we'll get there. And my, my favorite story of optimism ever is a project that ran one year late. One year. And what and was the what what's the typical sort of time frame for a software project in your world? It, it, it can really vary. I mean, typically we, we've talked about cycles of sprints, so two-week cycles where you can measure and adapt. But often when you're building features, it's not just two weeks, it will be multiple sprints. So honestly, it can go anywhere from two weeks to a couple of months, which is very typical, through to a year. And um, to overrun almost, by a year is an incredibly large amount. And yet no one sort of yeah. stood there and said, stop. Everyone yeah. said, what are we gonna do to kind of make it a bit better? So the power of optimism is astounding in terms of if you want something to succeed, if you haven't quite identified that it's not going to work, and you kind of don't really necessarily know what you need to do to fix it, it is surprisingly easy for projects to fail 
And as the aeroplane crashes in a fiery mess into the ground, the last words said by the pilot was, I think it's going to be okay. Yeah. One of the principles of war, there are principles of war, who knew? Um, One (laughs) of them is maintenance of morale. And there is, we've talked before about the components of fighting power. So the moral component, the physical component, the conceptual component. Well, that, that moral component, that why and how do we get people to you know, put themselves in harm's way, to get out of the trench and run towards the enemy or, or whatever combat situation we need our people to, to engage with, is, is making sure that they believe in the cause, that they're optimistic about the outcome. We've referenced several times on this podcast already the, the heroic efforts of the Ukrainians. If you think back, you know, over a year now to just those, those first few days after the initial mass invasion on February the 24th, you know, those couple of days when the whole of the Western world was saying, you know, how long is it going to be before Kiev falls? Everybody expected the Russians to swarm over Ukraine for the government to topple within the first you know, three to four days. And, and I think one of the reasons it didn't, we've talked a lot about the Russian reasons why they weren't as organised and as good at this as they could have been. But one of the reasons the Ukrainians were so good was that even in the face of overwhelming odds, even in the face of a logical, coherent argument to say, this isn't going to work, they found the moral courage and, you know, through the exquisite leadership of Zelensky managed to galvanize the people to resist to to do things and that turned it around so I think there's a a question there isn't there about how do you see optimism as a as a sign that the project is in trouble and how do you use optimism as a gauge of how good your team is going to be at facing the challenge I, th- I think that they're the two separate things. So actually, I would argue the Ukrainians have not um, sustained themselves purely on optimism. There is certainly a factor of that. I would argue they have a plan. I mean, I think in the early days, they were figuring out what the plan was at the last minute. But I don't think just them sitting there and saying, we're going to do it was what they did. I think there was a plan. So I, and going back to your point about the team, I I think the word optimism is a is an emotional feeling, a state of mind. It's about how I feel about something, but that absolutely is not the same as you can't connect that with if I feel optimistic, the plan will work. And so I, I certainly don't don't feel that you shouldn't be optimistic either as a person or in a business. But it's this idea, which is it's the plan that's going to save us, not yeah. the optimism. And okay. if you have a plan and yeah. optimism, we're all good. But it's just and it's and, and maybe the better term is. I was going to say blind optimism. That's not quite the word, the, the word here, but hopeful optimism. The point yeah. about number yeah. one is I can't give you evidence of something that has changed that now indicates that this plan will work but I'm going to believe I get there. I'm, I'm, I sound terrible today because I sound like I'm beating on the idea of optimism. I, no, I think that, that makes a lot of sense, actually. And I, I like the, the disconnect. And you, you said earlier about plans not being emotional, they're just plans. 
you know, I, I think for me, you know, this first point is, is about, you know, being optimistic about the way that you're working, optimistic about what you're trying to achieve, but not being optimistic about the way it's being executed and dislocating the, the passion for the project with your objective assessment of how the project is going. And we talked in the operational art episode about measurement of performance, measurement of effectiveness. To, to do those things properly and to do them well, you need to be emotionally you know, detached from the problem set so that you can, you know, with a critical eye, objectively measure how effective you're being. And you can be I, honest to the, to the command about the status of the current conditions. I think you've described it very well. And, and the, the final thing I'll say on this one before we go to number two is um, it's so easy to do. You're surrounded by good people. You're surrounded by talented people. Something's not quite working. We all want it to work. We're all going to push through. The thing about this one, which is which is kind of difficult, is you. I wanted to be optimistic. And going back to the point, the way you solve this is you 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 think about the facts, the plan, the outcomes, the measurements, and that's how you do it. Here's this is. 20 years as a product manager, this is probably the most useful thing that I have learned. And that is to be a good product manager is about being a good product manager without emotion. It ties into exactly what we said now. Mm. And I, I want to clarify that because I get an, people snap judge and say, that's terrible. I love my products. I love my customers. I've been very lucky I am passionate and emotional about what I'm trying to achieve. But the problem is that passion and emotion very easily gets in the way of me doing my job effectively. And so what I say to my team is to be good product managers and to serve our customers and our product the best, it's really important that we're able to disassociate that emotion. So the example I give is, our job as product managers is to come up with a list of things we should do in a specific order. And then if new information comes in, you add something new to the list, you put it in a certain order and you change that list. <clears throat> and that sounds very clinical. Here's what the problem can be. I love my product. I love my customer. I'm fixated on this one thing. Someone else comes in and says, we should do something different. <clears throat> I think they're crazy. I mean, it's a terrible yeah. idea. We shouldn't all of a sudden my ability to, to to thoughtfully evaluate the new information to simply change the priority of things gets clouded so this idea of good product managers know when to be passionate and emotional and excited and also know when to switch it off and say it is an unemotional mechanical process and if i do that with excellence that will we, that's how i will win Otherwise, you get frustrated. You people don't understand. You don't care. So that idea of product management without emotion, with a very careful definition by what we mean by that, that has been one of the most important lessons I've learned 
And I, I try to sort of instill that with my team because otherwise every day there's a reason to get emotional and happy about things. That's yeah. not what we need. So and we, we've talked about the, the influence emotion has on your ability to make decisions in, in previous episodes. And I think that that is a very, very good articulation of, of that problem yeah. set. What's the second one then, Chris? So the second one is the most blindingly obvious one in the world, but I'll add a bit of nuance to it. There's no plan. If you don't have a plan, the idea that something is going to work is highly unlikely. Now, again, each and every one of these, you're going to say, well, obviously, if I saw that, I would know that these are all kind of a bit insidious. So the lack of plan here is not that there isn't a whiteboard with the words plan written on it. It is the fact, and I see this so much, someone else is going to do that. You know, mm. we all agree that that is an important thing and it must happen. And then we all drift off. And when we come back a week later and nothing has happened, everyone looks sad and says, we talked about this. In fact, frequently what I hear is we've talked about this for years and nothing has happened. Well, I'll tell you why nothing has happened. It's because you didn't make a plan. You didn't associate people to be accountable for that plan and you didn't track that plan. So number two, as ridiculous as it sounds is, you actually have to have a plan. And if you don't have a plan and you don't have people who are accountable, actually there's a pretty fair chance this is not going to succeed. Yeah. In a very early episode when we talked about strategy, I we were talking about the various definitions and I fairly explicitly said, strategy is not just a plan because for a plan you just need a gantt chart you know and then it's a management problem of just balancing resources over time with strategy you have uncertainty you have external factors that change that situation and make it dynamic and therefore relying on a plan is is often um, or over-reliance on a plan is often where strategy goes wrong but not having a plan at all means that you're you're operating in an almost chaotic space. You are hopeful. You are hopeful that someone yeah. in the room felt it was important enough and was to go and do it. And I think maybe a maybe a different when we put this on the internet as our top ten list to to get clicks. It's not necessarily lack of plan. It is the assumption that someone else has made a plan, and yeah. then everyone walks away because I yeah. think that's. That's and, that, the thing. and again, it's it's remarkable how frequently it happens where you, you've all seen it. You're in the room. You talk yeah. about something. People get really excited. Something must be done. And there's no follow up actions. There's no yeah. this is what we're going to do. We're going to meet again. And so, of course, why would you think something was going to happen when we don't actually have a plan? And of course, Eisenhower uh, quite famously said, Planning is like, having a plan is useless, but planning is indispensable. I I I think that's very very well said. And I think part of that is firstly when when the plan falls apart, you know when you know no plan survives contact with the enemy. When the plan falls apart, when things change, you are all collectively invested because you have done the planning. If you are either just working off the fact that there is no plan and you're all just kind of doing stuff that's pretty chaotic if you're also working off the idea that there is a plan and somebody else is responsible for it then you're not invested in it both of those 
lead to you know, a potential deviation in people's collective efforts um, or just incoherence in, in what you're trying to do and, and how you're trying to do it. Yeah, I, I wonder whether there's some people listening to this thinking, this is a stupid one because who, what, what situation could you imagine in a professional world where someone wouldn't make a plan? And again, I think with all of these things, you know, partly the tongue in cheek, but seriously, these happen when you think, I'll tell you a world where people don't make plans when there are heroes. So th there's a th this sense of there are people and you will all know them in your workplace who are the guys and girls that say, I will not let this fail. I will work until two o'clock in the morning. I will do something without being asked and I will go the extra mile. And it's this classic balance of this. So having people who are committed and will go the extra mile, in fact, often the extra five miles, the people who don't need to be asked twice are really fantastic people to have in the team. But here's the downside. When you do that, people start to rely on the heroes. You start to say, well, I know this project isn't realistic, but Bob, he'll work the weekend for us or Jane will work the weekend for us. And so there is a real balance to be had around whether you have heroes in your organization and a different way of saying it rather than saying heroes are bad. And that's not what I mean is, have you built a sustainable organization? A sustainable robust organization will that organization if that person is on holiday still succeed so yeah going back what why is it that there could be a world where there wouldn't be a plan again often i've seen it which is well if i say i want something enough bob will realize i mean him and bob off his own back will come with a plan so again another another area where i see quite a lot organizations not having a plan and being you know, found out is when the situation changes and the dynamic is new and they haven't done enough of what we've talked about before in terms of evaluating future possibilities, contingency planning, uh, red teaming situations. Um, but when things change and they change rapidly and you haven't thought about that or cl something close to it, you're left then without a plan. And I think, again, that's when you know, things can, can, can become unstuck. Um, and in the military, we try and get around that in two ways. One, things that we routinely can anticipate and expect, we train for. We have uh, what we call immediate action drills. And we've talked before about you know, the, the value of rehearsing things so that when the situation changes, there is a plan. It's just not explicitly the plan. It's just a fallback kind of response option. And the second thing we do is we red team things. We, we have a third party, normally the intelligence staff, who try to get inside the minds of the competitor, the adversary, and try and pick apart our plan so that we can think about situations where that will go wrong. We've done a whole episode on that, so I'm not going to dwell on it anymore, but I think that is a situation where you may find yourself without a plan if you've not given it enough thought. And maybe to finish this one off, how do you know whether you've got a plan or not got a plan? And then again, I'm, I'm going to say this even more times. I know this sounds ridiculous. Here's, here's an interesting question for you to ask. Am I witnessing a set of, of 
activities, people doing things, or am I watching a plan where there is a set of connected actions that need something else? And I, again, probably sounds weird. This is one of my particular bugbears where we say, this thing must happen. And all of a sudden people are active and doing things. And we report back, I am doing something, isn't it great? And I have done something and everyone says, woohoo, we're making progress. No, we're not. We're doing things, yeah. but these things do not connect and lead us to a clear path. So that's a really, it's a, it's a common thing when, when there are high value projects and when there are sort of almost vanity projects, are people doing things to be seen to be doing something or is there a coherent plan which connects those things and leads us to an outcome? Yeah. All right. I've, I've, I've done, so optimism number one, separate out optimism, you know, from the plan. The plan's going to make you win, not optimism. N number two we just talked about is the, the lack of a plan that, you know, we think something's going to happen, but no one's accountable. There isn't a plan. Number three is... It is another one of those. I mean, all of these come from the heart because I felt these, which is you start a project that you maybe weren't ready to start. And so this one, in my language, is about a lack of specifications and goals. And it's this sort of sense of we should get started. We probably don't know enough, but it'll be all right because we'll figure out as we go. And there's a real sense in the software world of there is there is sort of this, this world of we're not ready to start the soft building software yet because we, we don't know enough. We haven't answered all the questions. Now, this is the bit where you get into the debate about we can't know everything. It's a world of unpredictability. I get all of that, but there's a big difference between you know conversations I've had in the past. So we need to start building this thing next week. Is it red or is it blue? We don't know. We haven't spoken to the customer yet. This is a pretty fundamental question. And if we don't understand the specifications and goals and acceptance criteria, there is an opportunity for things to start to slide. And not only do they slide, but you then witness people starting to um, say that that's okay. So, yeah. you know, we wanted it red. Oh, we got a blue thing because we hadn't quite heard from the customer yet. But it's okay. Blue is probably okay. And you start to hear this language which says, hang on a minute. We didn't know what they wanted. We 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 may not have got it right. We went early, but now we're starting to say it's okay. That's another sign. So my third yeah. one is not really being ready to start. That's a big sign. And you can see the you can sort of see the symptoms of that through the project. Yeah. When there's still lots of important unanswered questions as opposed to things you can iterate on and learn as you go. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to go back to my principles of, well, they're not my principles of war, but the principles of war. I, I um, like the fact you have principles of war, though, because yeah. many people are unprincipled <laughs> about war. You have principles. I am very principled on, on how I do war. Um, the primary principle of war, so there are 10 principles of war, but the primary one is selection and maintenance of the aim. And... That, I think, resonates very, very closely with this. And it's the idea that if you are going to go to war, if you're going to commit people to do 
fairly horrific things and at high risk, you've got to know why you're doing it. And yeah, this isn't a military history podcast. Um, but of course, when when you talk about these things in hindsight, there's always that tension between the political appetite and the military appetite and trying to square those things together. But if you don't have a very, very clear aim as to why you are committing military force, one of two things can happen. Or in fact, they can both happen. One is you get mission creep. And this is the idea that as the situation changes, you redefine your purpose. And if that keeps happening, what you effectively end up doing is chasing the error. Yeah. Um, the second thing that can happen is the people that have committed forces into combat can then retrospectively self-justify the decision um, because you don't choose the success criteria until afterward, at which point you can lower the bar to whatever you've met. Now, I, I, we kind of got into this a little bit in the operational art um, session, and I don't want to sort of get back into it, and I certainly don't want to turn this into a, um, a philosophical discussion, but the Iraq War, 2003, invasion of Iraq, arguably, selection and maintenance of the aim was one of the fundamental problems with the overarching strategy knowing what we were there for beforehand was almost you know black and white and pretty clear and two decades later we're talking about completely different things i i think that is another element to this um lack of specification and goals if you're going to commit capability to do things you've got to know why and more importantly bringing it back to the operational art piece you've got to be able to know how to measure whether you're attaining those goals because if you don't know what the goals are you can't measure effectiveness you can and only you, measure performance and you have to be really honest about it as well so i've I, i've had an experience in the past where we had an agreement with another organization to do some work six months in they were unable to deliver the work we had originally said and it was interesting how people around me were talking as if the new thing they were going to do was what we had originally asked them. So I yeah. think what's what's true about all of these things is, you know, if you wrote them down, I'd like to think that all the people listening to this podcast are pretty smart. All of these things you would say, but by definition, Chris, the project isn't going to go well. This isn't very useful. But the reason why this is so difficult is because these things are masked. Human nature yeah. says, the case I talked about, look, we've spent money, we've built a relationship with these guys, we're invested, we've told other people we're going to do this. It's really hard to say, wait, this, this hasn't worked, stop. Yeah. This is yeah. the, um, you know, the sunk cost fallacy. Well, in fact, frankly, the sunk cost fallacy is lurking around all of these things, which says, what is it that stops me identifying this project is not on track? Yes. More often than not, it's the sunk cost fallacy winking at me saying, well, we've got so far. Well, we're kind of doing the things that we said we would do. It'll be all right. That's what everyone has to look out for. Yeah. And, and again, that part of the sunk cost fallacy is it's a system one 
subconscious thing, I've invested time and effort. And so subconsciously, I feel like I need to get something out of this. This needs yeah. to be successful. But it can also be a very conscious thing. Um, and what you end up doing is justifying activity by measuring the things that you know you're going to get positive returns on. And so we're See, back we... to this measuring performance. Well, How many I... meetings have we had, et cetera, et cetera. All of these things come together because what you've just described is let's measure activity because we've done lots of yeah. activity. And if we measure activity, we'll all feel good about ourselves. All right. Well, look, I tell you what, we've been talking now for, I think, half an hour or so. Why don't we take a quick break? And then let's come back and frankly canter through the last, ooh, I think it's the last seven because we've got quite a few more to go. So um, we'll be right back. Uh, see you in a second. Sounds good. Welcome back. So we just talked about um, uh, lack of specifications and goals. Number four on my list of things that give you a sense that maybe the project isn't running as well. And, and none of these are definitive. This is about you asking, probing and honest in questions. So if you see any of these symptoms, it might be that nothing's wrong at all. The whole point of this is when is it you should ask questions? That's really what this podcast is about. When should you start asking questions, start testing with your written plan? So number four on my list, actually, you'll start to see these all sort of follow on almost from each other. The, the last one was about not understanding specifications and goals. This one is not understanding your dependencies. Again, yeah. it's another classic problem in software, particularly in complex businesses when all of a sudden you have different teams that build different parts of the product and frequently what will happen is you will it's a let's pretend it's a four-month project you get to month three it's all going great and then someone says oh wait a minute we need this other team to do some work for us and of course it hasn't been planned and all of a sudden not only does the the project take a big hit but now you start to say, what other dependencies don't we understand? So it's a very common problem that people don't take the time to think about all the things that must be true for a project to be successful. And so here's the, I think, as we've gone through this sort of, I've accidentally tripped onto this. How do you know this? I mean, this is the real thing. Knowing the cause is one thing. How do you identify that is, ask the team, what are the dependencies? And if the answer is, uh there aren't any okay that's fine but talk to me a bit more to prove there aren't any tell me how you've spoken to other people show me some evidence that you've spent some time thinking about it now as i was writing this one down i thought this was a very very clear military one because i have to believe organizing a military campaign of of small scale or large scale this one must be a killer do we have all the petrol that we need to get our trucks to drive us to the place we need to go before we can run up a hill and start shooting at people? What's your sort of thinking around dependencies as, as applied to the military and how you plan for those? Yeah, I think you're entirely right, Chris. There's, we've talked to, before, we've said the phrase, um, amateurs taught tactics, professionals taught logistics. I think absolutely understanding 
those cross-functional dependencies are how you make in combat, you know, combat effectiveness, it's how you make those fighting capabilities work. It's how you get them to the right place. It's how they are able to operate for sustained periods of time. There's a whole load of stuff that has to be thought about to get that tiny little combat element onto the objective to do the thing that you need to do. We talked in the operational art podcast episode about the uh, many different actions and activities that would be required to create less effects and how many effects would create objectives and, and it was that hierarchy. Well, you've got to understand how these things complement and in concert create the effects you want to achieve. The second thing I would say about dependencies from a military perspective is this goes back to this idea of command, this idea of knowing very, very clearly across your organization who has authority, accountability, and responsibility. Well, you've, you've, you've just cheated because number five is, you can tell I thought about this in a way, no accountability. So let's, let's poke on that as a number five. And, and I, I suspect, well, you do, I suspect you've come up with that because you've started from having a lack of understanding of dependencies and that as a symptom will create ambiguity about accountability which is also a problem for a project well it, it goes i mean all of these are linked so lack of a plan lack of a specification and goals lack of understanding of dependencies okay who is on the hook for these things there needs to be someone who says i am the person who is accountable that these things must be thought about and delivered so yeah. that that i think is, is is really important so number five is no accountability who is in charge or responsible or accountable for the project and the outcome and that the you know this is all about stuff that i've encountered typically it's 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 quite rare that there's sort of well, we don't have anyone we've not you know normally we organize i think the bigger problem here is there is confusion around who is accountable. You know, yeah. five of us in a meeting said we were involved in a project. We had to do a thing. We're all in the meetings. We turn up every week and we can talk about it. We're all good, right? No, no. Who is the single person? Who is the person who literally, if it goes wrong, I'm going to go to and say, what has happened? Why has it gone wrong? Not because I want to blame someone because it's that lack of accountability is all of these other things happen. Well, I... I thought you had the plan. I thought you knew what the customer wanted. So yeah. accountability. And we, we've talked before about the, the balance of empowerment and letting people who are closer to the problem make the right decisions. But you've got to do that very, very deliberately. And I find in the military, we, it, you know, it, it, it's pretty unhelpful in, in certain ways, but very, very helpful from a command perspective that we have a very, very clear chain of command. People wear rank literally on their uniforms. So we all know where people sit in the hierarchy. We have very, very structured teams. And yet, quite often, when it comes to delivering on a plan, we can mix and match those teams up. We can reorder them. But it gives us the ability to very, very quickly understand 
who is accountable, who has authority, and what that means. And, and I quite often see in civilian organisations a squeamishness around this idea of telling people that this person is in charge, that this person has a responsibility. And we, we kind of dance around the subject a little bit. What that allows you to do is to know the limits of what you are empowered to do, which gives you the freedom then to use up to those limits. I, I want to I echo that because I think this, this idea of accountability, you're right, there's this... If you said to people to think accountability is bad, no one's going to say they think it's bad. But nice. there's this sort of sense of, I don't want to offend people by saying they're they're in charge or particularly in a group of peers, yeah, that yeah. person is, there's a bit of squeamishness there. There's also a little bit of a sense of the word accountability. Lots of people associate it with blame. Yes. Oh, the person accountable, he's the one that gets pointed out if it's blame. Quite the opposite, exactly what you said. It is an incredibly empowering thing to say, you are accountable. Oh, I'm accountable. Okay, I understand now I have this authority. This is, I, it is clear now what my responsibility is that is empowering. Likewise, for other members of the team, actually, that's really valuable to know this is the person who's accountable. So if we have a difference of opinion, that's great. But the accountable person is the one who actually must make the decision and bear that responsibility. So rather than it being a negative thing, accountability, I think it's incredibly empowering. And frankly, you get more out of people. So number five, no accountability. I'm, I'm, I'm cantering maybe a gallop towards the end. The next one, we've already implied it multiple times because when something goes wrong, how do you know something is going wrong? Here's a classic, lack of governance. Yeah. We didn't really track the plan. We just met and said, how's it going? Oh, it's going great, it's going great. So you might think, well, that's very clear. We need a weekly governance meeting, that's fine. But again, there's all sorts of more insidious things. When there is a date, far in the future to deliver something it is very easy to say well we don't need to meet we don't need to talk about it because it's far away and the next thing you know that project is coming to conclusion in a month's time and oh we didn't we didn't really track it we didn't have any governance around it here's another one for me i was actually i was talking about this at dinner tonight and i got some funny looks i'm about to make enemies of any engineers who are on, on listen to this podcast, skunk work projects. So this is a very common thing in the world of software, which I'm generalizing kind of goes like this. Here is a thing that we think we should do, but for some reason we have either not been given the authority to go and do it, or more specifically, typically, we haven't been given the resources to go and do it but we believe in it so much, we are gonna do it off the books. We're gonna go off and we're gonna quietly get some people to do this. And I'm making it that it's a bad thing. And it's another one of these examples of, we want the best thing and this is the way we're gonna go and do it. But here's the downside. Those projects, people typically are so busy trying to do the thing they're trying to do. When was the last time you had governance around a Skunk Works project? but it's skunk works. I don't need to have a meeting every week. I don't need to talk about the timeline. I don't need to have a clear set of deliveries. This is, don't you understand? This is a skunk works project. So lack so of governance. Can, I, really can I just clarify, you're not, you're not disparaging the idea of hiving off some capability to go and work on a special project. What you're saying is that is not an excuse 
exactly so not to be governed properly exactly and, and by the way yeah. often in the, the skunk works case it's not that someone has said i choose to take this piece of cap capacity carve it off and do something with it it's often people of their own recognizance saying we need to do this let's go that's less of an issue the yeah. big issue is that there is literally no excuse not to apply good governance in whatever yeah. form it looks like for whatever you do and good governance could be an email good governance could be a phone call it could be a weekly meeting what i'm not saying is it's this huge monolithic thing but if you don't track if you don't say how are we doing we said yeah. we'd do x and we're not doing it that is a problem and again you would say who on earth would run a project without proper governance normally you wouldn't but there are so many reasons why it's special and that you've heard me say this in previous podcasts something i learned years ago in fact here you go this is number 11 for free when people start telling you that there is something special about this project more often than not and i've been doing this now for 20 years the word special doesn't refer to something entirely and demonstrably unique that has never been done before special often means we're breaking the rules but we're yeah. using the cloak of special to say somehow that doesn't apply to us Skunkworks yeah. project it's it's special we don't need to do governance for that no you do um no accountability well we're we know each other so well and it's all great we don't need to do that we're special look out for that word special it's a killer and it and typically no one uses the word special but you can see it in their eyes this doesn't, think this doesn't again, apply to me there's a problem with governance that i see quite often where the project runs slightly off track you know it goes over budget things don't get done or a mistake is made and people deliberately or just through a lack of reporting a lack, lack of transparency don't they, they cover that up that is compounded by the fact that the person who is supposed to be having oversight and governance doesn't feel like they know what's happened they might have a sense that something has happened but they don't know what it is and this is especially the case when the person who has oversight doesn't have the deep specialist knowledge of some of the specialists within the team and so what you end up with is this embarrassment from the person who is supposed to be providing that oversight and governance that they don't really know what their team are doing yeah and a sense within the team that they don't want the boss to know what they're doing because they might change things because they know themselves that what they're doing is possibly outside of the rules or you know or mistakes will be highlighted and, and some of this is about breaking the rules and some of this is just about behaviors you know if the boss really knew how little we were doing we'd probably have to work a bit harder so or, or like if, or if... he never comes down to the warehouse you know, those kind of tendencies they creep in and if you don't go to the warehouse it becomes harder and harder and harder to open the office door, walk down there Absolutely. and go and poke about because you don't know what you're poking about. Um, and, and, and I hear this all the time. And it's not about this idea of governance 
is an eternal dance of it's the Goldilocks thing. You don't want too much governance because uh, the is about yes. writing reports and checking things. Yeah. And you want too little. But the role of governance is to identify as early as possible projects that are running into problems in order that you can sit down with the right people and talk about it. It is when these things are left to continue and there is an underlying problem. So what's interesting is, you know, optimism, lack of a plan, lack of a specification and goals, lack of understanding of dependencies, no accountability. How do you spot that? Well, one way to spot that is good governance. In a meeting, who is accountable? Awkward silence. We might not have an accountability there. Um, right, what are the dependencies? Silence. Uh, we, so governance is great with doing that. All right, I'm going to move on to seven and eight. And in the interest of time, I'm going to combine them. Yeah. Change in scope, changing goals. We're doing less than we had promised, but that's okay. That's a really interesting statement. In other words, yeah. a different way of saying it is, we had thought we would make progress to this degree. It turns out we did not make that much progress, but we are now changing the goalposts. Why did you only deliver that much? You know, it might be very reasonable. We were on holiday last week. Bob was sick. Or, yeah, it turns out we did a terrible job with our specifications. And actually, yeah. we had to do a really bunch of work. So changing scope, changing goals. I did a job in Afghanistan once where I was part of the NATO training mission. So the whole focus was on training the Afghan National Army, the Afghan National Police and various other bits of the Afghan governance structure. And one of the huge pressures we had was getting the troop numbers up to whatever had been determined you know, as, as success. And a particular commander from a nation that I will not mention was having a problem with their Afghan National Army recruits passing the shooting test. And it wasn't a particularly difficult shooting test. All they had to do was shoot 10 rounds onto a certain size target from a certain distance. And to be honest, if you knew how to safely handle the weapon and you were strong enough to hold it, you should be able to pass that test. It wasn't particularly difficult. However, they were struggling to get people to pass it. It was a criteria that had to be passed in order to be an infantry soldier in the Afghan National Army. And all they did was say, well, they have to hit 10 rounds on the target, so why don't we make the target bigger? And that's what they did. And suddenly, the problem went away, and all of these Afghan National Army soldiers were passing the shooting test. Anybody, rationally, who steps back from that situation can objectively see straight away that all you're doing is lowering the quality and therefore increasing the risk and that is not the purpose of that goal but because the pressure of the project was such that this goal became the focus not the effect we were trying to achieve that's what they did very common people um i mean in the software world we we deliver a thing which isn't as much as we said. And because there is such a, the moment you finish one project, you move on to the next. It's so easy. In fact, it's almost always that no one says, wait a minute, stop. Did we deliver less because that was what was truly merited? Or did we deliver less? And we should talk about that because that means we might not deliver 
what we need to deliver in the, in the next yeah. cycle as well. So changing scope, changing goals. Last, last two, overconfidence. Ah, uh, we've yeah. done this before. You know what? We don't need to do half those things. You know, I know we used to do weekly meetings. We've done this. This is just like the thing we did before. Let's do monthly meetings. You know, we don't have a plan, but I'll, I'll go get the plan we did the last time. Overconfidence. It's, it's such an, particularly in teams that have worked together for a long time, we, yeah. we, we naturally want to take shortcuts. Shortcuts is another word for op optimization and going faster. The trick is when you apply those shortcuts and when you don't apply those shortcuts and overconfidence. And then- Yeah, I think there's a part that goes with that, which is as an individual becomes more skilled at doing a job, something they've done many times before, they don't need to refer to the manual every time. They don't need to necessarily follow all the steps. And so what happens is the old sweats over time effectively shortcut the system and create their own way of doing things that's fine if you are an individual that provides a service if you are part of a team people will try and emulate that because they want to be like the professionals and professionals take shortcuts because that's what they're observing but more importantly if you're part of a team a lot of those checks a lot of those steps that are put in place are not necessarily for a very very competent 20 year experience technician they are for the common denominator of the team so that if mistakes happen they're going to get caught so you build bad behaviors but you also miss the opportunity for checks you miss those opportunities for correcting errors and if the situation changes so this kind of idea of well we've done this before well, maybe you've done something similar before, but this time, you know, the customer is different or this time the specification is different and applying old paradigms just because you've done projects like this before. If you don't communicate properly, if you don't go through the process of checking, of communicating, of verifying requirements, then what happens is you end up with that kind of compounding error. I had this experience a couple of years ago. And so this is sort of almost the reverse of what you've just said as well, which is, you know, sat down with someone and said, hey, been thinking about this to solve this problem. Why don't we do this? And the answer was, nah, we tried that before. It doesn't work. Let's not do it. Wait, sorry. Yeah, it doesn't work. Hang on a minute. You're assuming, A, that things are the same. And B, you know how you, you said you've got evidence that it doesn't work? Did we build that evidence based on real world or did we execute poorly fail and therefore never try it again? So yeah. overconfidence and maybe overconfidence is the, I don't know whether that's the wrong word, but the shortcuts I think is right. Right, last one. And, and then we'll sort of round this all up. And you ruined it for me because I think this was one of the first things you called out where you said, wait a minute, Chris, are you telling me that if things are going well, then that's a bad sign? I was thinking, you've ruined my punchline to the hour-long joke. What I've done, Chris, is I've made this a and circular now, podcast and we've just oh, gone back that. to where we started. It was I, all very I, deliberate. I see what you've done now. So my number 10 is everything seems to be going well. And before you... 
I, I suspect by now there'll be a few people going, this has been interesting. And there'll be many more banging their heads on the desk saying, this is just absolute rubbish. You're saying obvious things that aren't true. And then you compounded at the end by saying, if things are going well, surely this is evidence that things are going badly. That's not what I'm saying. To be successful in projects, you always have to assume there's something you haven't figured out yet. When things are going well, that's the perfect time for you to sit back, light the cigar, open the whiskey and say, I am just awesome. And actually that is precisely the time when you say, things seem to be going well without being paranoid. What is it we haven't thought of? This is the most amazing opportunity where we are not under pressure. Now is the time to say, have we forgotten something? Can we optimize something? Yeah, and I, I think this is where we talked earlier about governance and the balance of not ignoring what's happening so much so that you lose any sense of it and therefore can't tell when things are going awry, but also not micromanaging and you know doing other people's jobs for them. When things are going well, that's when the general gets in the helicopter, flies forward and goes and shakes hands with the, the men and women in the trench when things are going well that's when you can say right we're going to hold a a contingency planning session my intelligence staff you know what could the enemy do next to derail this plan not what do we think they're going to do but what's the most dangerous what could happen now that would pull the rug from under this plan and we're going to war game that now's the time to make sure that everybody is fully aware of what the plan is, that as things have changed, everybody is aware of the changes and the approaches to reaffirm the goal, the purpose, the vision. It's the time where you go around and ask questions. This is what John was talking about when we talked about fear. And he said, you know, he's now at a rank where he can get away with asking people how their weapons work. Yeah because he's not expected to do that as the deputy divisional commander. But when things are going well, that's an opportunity to go and ask those questions, to go and find out, to go and be educated by your team. Yeah, I, I think you've ended on a really, really good one, because for me, it is the epitome of good command, good leadership, that when things go really, really well, you're not going to your boss and saying, do you know what? Things are going really, really well. Or going awesome. to the golf course. What you're doing is using this as an opportunity to make space for the next time that things aren't going so well. I want to finish by phrasing this in terms of, and we've had some fun tonight in terms of talking about these things, but what is it you can do tomorrow, whether you're in the military or whether you're in business? So the two things you have talked about is listen carefully ask questions yeah. you know good leaders should be doing that all the time in fact that is our greatest skill and our greatest weapon listen ask questions are your team being overly optimistic in the face of evidence that tell you things are not going well do you hear people talking in a way that says i don't think you've got a plan i think you're just talking about hoping that good things will happen yeah when people talk about the thing the project 
Are they able to articulate clear specifications and goals? Does the team or can they articulate dependencies? Do they even think about it or do they look blankly? Can everyone in the team point to who is accountable? You walk into a project meeting and if you said stop, I'm going to count to three and I want you to point to the one person in this room who is accountable for this project. Can they do it? Is there governance? Is there a clear process by which, at whatever degree of complexity, people meet? Scope and goals. Did they seem to be changing? And are people saying, everyone, the goal has changed or the scope has changed? This is why and this is what the outcome is. Or do people seem to be talking about things that have changed and somehow glossing over? That wasn't what we talked about two weeks ago. Do you walk in a room and if you've got a bunch of people that seem to be overly confident, you know, just it's all fine. I've done this before. Get out of my way, you know, all that kind of stuff. And finally, just that feeling is everything going well and is everyone taking it for granted that it's going well today and therefore it must be going well tomorrow so use those weapons of listening and asking questions and genuinely this is 20 years of me screwing up more times than i can count i sadly i can talk about more screw-ups than i can victories but these are the things that over the years i've learned we joke about them you know but these are the things which generally are at the bottom of when projects go astray. I think that's brilliant, Chris. These aren't these aren't questions that you can just answer and you know, solve problems. But if you're thinking about them as you go, if you're asking the right questions of the right people and encouraging them to do the same and cascading that through the system, then you're going to catch this earlier than than when it's too late. Um, and I think with, with you know, project management, it comes down so much to building trust in that system. Yes, it's about technical specifications. Yes, it's about data and creating data flows. But so much of it is about building a team who all want, want it to succeed and are communicating honestly and openly about currently where you are in in the thing even when that's bad news even when they're telling you things you don't want to hear yeah yeah and yeah. i think that's when you've got that you've got a brilliant team and you know when you find a a leader that can empathize communicate influence and has a brilliant team that's when you say projects thrive even when you know everything's going wrong around them Right. We've thank you for letting me get this off my chest. I think I'm now going to uh, do the cliched thing of go down to the hotel bar and have a glass of whiskey from one of the six regular whiskey bottles in the background. But anyway, let's call it uh, for the evening. Thank you very much, everyone, for joining us. We are on Twitter battling with biz. And at this point, I remind everyone, look, we would love to get feedback from you. Uh, we are also on email, uh, which is battlingwithbusiness at gmail.com. If you've got friends who you think would find this interesting, please, please share with them. You know, the, the goal of this is to sort of share this conversation ideas as many people as, as possible. 
And also, if you're a newer listener, if you haven't listened to the other episodes, um, please do. We we make lots of references to early episodes, but lots to listen. So I think that is enough for one evening from Birmingham and from deepest, darkest Oxfordshire. So it is good night from me. And good night from me.